0: We are in week four of our teaching series, which is called True North. Uh, we've been looking at this from the start of the year, really. And we're looking at how do you navigate life? How do you head through life and stay true north, magnetic north on a compass, shifts but true north stays the same. How do, you, how do you cope with life when you're in uncharted waters? How do you When, when maybe you've got no map or your sat Nav has died and you're in a situation or a circumstance when you don't know how to stay true north. And so we've been looking at that as a series over the last few weeks. And we've been looking at various compasses uh, that God has given us that will enable us to stay true north. We've looked at faith, we've looked at character, and we've looked at identity. And today we're going to look at another compass. And to help us to do that, we're looking through history at some ex- Famous explorers, and I want you today to meet one—a a guy who you will have heard of. Some of the people I've talked about you haven't heard of, but this guy is called Ernest Shackleton. How many have heard of Ernest Shackleton? Yeah, you've all heard of Shackleton, I'm sure. One of the greatest explorers that the world has ever seen. And December the 29th, 1913, The Times published the announcement Shackleton put in, inviting people to apply for his expedition. And this reads like a job description at a church, okay? It says this men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, has honor and recognition in case of success. I mean, can you imagine that? And that was the advertisement for an expedition. 5,000 men applied. 5,000 people in 1913 applied for that job. Why? Because Shackleton had something which they could all see and sense. He had the compass of passion. This man was passionate for the exploration, for, for exploring, especially the Antarctica and the South Pole. And this compass of passion enabled him to stay true north in his own life. In 1901, he went with Robert Scott to the South Pole. They'd been further than anyone had been before, but they didn't make it. In 1907, he went on another expedition, had to turn back agonizingly 97 nautical miles from his goal. In 1911, Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, and Scott set out on a a race to try and get to the South Pole. As you know, if you know your history, Amundsen got there first. Scott got there a month later. And then him and his whole team died on the way back to base. Edmund Hillary, who climbed Mount Everest in 1953, he said of him, Shackleton was at his best when the going was toughest. One of Shackleton's own team said this about about him. He said, For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficient travel, give me Amundsen. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when you are seeing no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Incomparable in adversity, he was the miracle worker who could save your life against all odds long after your number was up and There was something about this guy that was was like an internal compass of passion, passion for exploration, passion for adventure, and passionate for the men that were on his team as well in one thousand nine hundred and fourteen, Shackleton made his third trip to the Antarctic with a ship called the Endurance. Planning to cross Antarctica via the South Pole. This was the last great big thing that they had to do. They got to the South Pole. So it was about, can we get across Antarctica sea to sea? Early in 1915, the Endurance became trapped in ice. And 10 months later, it sank. Shackleton's crew had already abandoned the ship to live on the floating ice. In April 1916, they set off in three small boats, eventually reaching Elephant Island. Taking five crew members, Shackleton went to find help. Can you imagine this? In a small boat, the six men spent six days crossing 1,300 kilometers of ocean to reach South Georgia. And then they trekked across the island to the whaling station. But the remaining men from the Endurance were rescued in August 1916. Not one single man was lost on that expedition. And that was because this man, their leader, had passion. And I want to suggest to you today, passion changes everything. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. This is where we've been the last four weeks. Um, We've been looking at this uh, book, which was written to a group of people that were in between the two great persecutions, one under Nero and one under the Emperor Domitian. And uh, these these were believers that had come to faith, but they were in danger of drifting. They were in danger of losing their confidence. They were in uncharted waters. The world was changing around them. And uh, their sat-navs you know, were useless. They, the maps were useless. And, and they needed some compasses. And so we've looked at, uh, uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, there's this chapter 11, which, which sits right there, as if you like, the, maybe the high water chapter of the book of Hebrews, where it then uh, basically talks about a whole load of men and women who, who, in this kind of crazy world that they were living in, and this was even pre-Jesus, Hebrews 11 is talking about people that from the Old Testament, that actually they had compasses that kept them true north. And so we looked at Abraham with the compass of faith and then we looked at Joseph with a compass of character and then last week we looked at Moses with the compass of identity and before we look at David and what his compass was the writer talks about a whole load of people and we're going to read this out to you and as you listen to this you cannot do this without passion as I read this out to you you cannot be this without passion it says in Hebrews 11:32, what more shall I say I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Like none of them got to the South Pole. None of them got to the goal of the destination, yet they all lived true north. They lived with faith. They lived with character. They lived with integrity. And can you imagine? And, And the writer says, these guys and girls all did it and they all had passion. And passion changes everything. And when I look at that, and I know that not all of you might say that you're a follower of God, that you're a Christ follower, that you're a Christian. I know that. And we're really glad you're here. But if you say you are, when you read that, you think that, to do that, you've got to have passion. And we think we're being passionate for God when we get up early on a Sunday morning and scrape ice off our car so we can drive to church. And yet look at what these guys and girls did. You do not do that unless you have passion. Unless you have passion. And this compass that we're going to look at, passion. uh, And and when I'm preparing for a theme like this, I always try and read widely if I can and and research widely. So we're going to go wide a little bit and then come back in. And when you look in the dictionary, the dictionary defines passion as a strong, barely controllable emotion. It's like a strong desire that gets you to do amazing things. And, And these guys and girls would not have done these amazing things without passion. And before we think, oh, that's okay, that was thousands of years ago in the Bible. Can I tell you, there are more people who have lost their faith, lost their life for their faith in the last hundred years than in all of the other years in history put together. And there are men and women who are doing this very same thing and are going through what we've just read right now in our world and are losing their faith, are losing their life for their faith. They have passion. They have passion. We have no idea, do we? We have no idea what it is to live this kind of life. What some people have said about passion? John Maxwell, great leadership author and speaker, he said a great leader's courage to fulfill his vision comes from passion, not position. Great leader is not a great leader because of their position, but because of the passion that's at work in their life. A guy called Hegel, who was a a European uh, psychotherapist, said nothing great in the world has been accomplished without passion. Nothing great in the world. And Maya Angelou, that great writer and author, passed away a few years ago, I think. She said this, My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive. And to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humour, and some style. Can't guarantee all four of those for you this morning. All right, but I'll certainly try and hopefully bring some passion. And people do amazing things for passion, I don't know if you've ever seen this film called Turner. It's a film that was out recently and um, it was based on the life of Turner, who was, a, who was a, an English landscape painter. And he was very famous for um, painting uh, seas and painting boats at sea, especially boats at sea in storms, okay, and um, the story goes that he went down to the docks at Plymouth, I think it was, and he asked the captain of a ship, one of these old school ships, you know, sailing ship, he said, would you strap me to the front of the ship and then sail the ship out into the storm so I can really experience what it feels like to sail through a storm and then I can create that on a canvas, that's passion, isn't it? or Lunacy, I'm not quite sure which one it was. Then a few years ago, when I started cycling, I thought, let's read about some cycling. So I read about Sir Christopher Hoy, and... Um now, I've not got anywhere near what Christopher Hoy does or on cycling, please, honestly, nothing. But what he did, apparently, when he was at the peak of his powers and competing in all these Olympics and world championships, he would cycle around the track so many times that eventually his legs stopped working because the lactic acid was so productive in his legs that he couldn't do it anymore. And he would literally fall off the bike and then throw up on the track. Ruhr! I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I am not that passionate about cycling. And then one of the things that I'm passionate about is movies. And I I love what reading around movies, what actors do. And Tom Hanks in in, in the film Castaway lost 55 pounds. And because he wanted to embrace this, this life of being a castaway on an island, he put himself in cold water for so long that he got infected and got a blood condition because of it. Daniel Day-Lewis, in the film The Crucible, um, wanted to be so authentic that this was set in the Middle Ages. uh, And what he wanted to do was he said, I want to be authentic in this. So he scratched uh, tattoos in his own chest with a knife so they would look more authentic. In the film My Left Foot, where he plays a character in in a wheelchair, if you've ever seen that, he sat so long in the wheelchair that when he got up, his leg went to sleep and he fell over and broke his foot, his left foot. Which is irony, isn't it? And these people would do these amazing things for passion. Yeah, they get, you get paid a lot of money. But, but to do that, you've got to have something on the inside, haven't you? Lots of other people who would be paid that amount of money wouldn't do it. Because they don't have the passion. They don't have what drives you. Passion is an internal compass. And passion changes everything. And what would life without passion be like? Let me read something. Mike Yacchanali's great book, Dangerous Wonder, which I quote many times. He said this, when there is no passion, we live our lives in the smoggy fog of sameness. Love that phrase. Life loses its distinctions and we no longer see the nuances, the tiny differences. You know, we we no longer feel our feelings. They become dull, insensitive. Life without passion is life without texture, contrast and depth. We walk through life trance like, going through the motions of living, emotionless, getting through each day, getting by, ending our lives, lost and directionless, busy doing something that turns out to be nothing, focusing on what doesn't matter and missing what does. And I want to suggest that we need passion in our lives, we need passion in our marriages, we need passion in our workplaces. We need passion in our communities and in our families. And can I say, we need passion when it comes to loving God. You see, passion changes everything. And one of the question I want to ask for you this morning is this. If you were to imagine a box, that you would draw a box like that and you were to write in what is in the top box of your life, what are you most passionate about? What would it be? So you might put your family, and that's a very good thing, But should that be in your top box, you might put your career or your job. You might put your calling. You might put your hobby or your interest. You might put your gift or your talent. You might put that relationship. Because you see, whatever you put in your top box will determine the direction of your life. It's a compass that will drive you. And I want to suggest as good as though all those things are, if you are a follower of God this morning, none of those things should be in your top box not even your family. I was talking this week with the equipped guys, the five guys that are on this course with us this morning, this, this year and doing such a great job. And we were talking about calling. And one of them reminded us all about the difference between our primary calling. Not I didn't remind it, they reminded us about the difference between our primary calling and our secondary calling. And we've all got lots of different callings and we've all got lots of different passions. But the primary thing, the thing that should be in your top box is your love for God is passion for God. More than your family, more than your job, more than your talent, more than anything else. It's got to be Him. And you see that in the life of David. One of the most famous people in the Bible. David was a man who was very passionate. He was passionate about music. He was passionate about poetry. He was passionate about leadership. He was passionate about battles. He was passionate about the nation of Israel. But ultimately, in his top box... The passion that changed everything was his passion for the presence of God. And it says in one of the things that he wrote in Psalm 63, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And you can be passionate about lots of things, and that's great. But if you don't have God in the top box of your life, and you say you're a Christian, you're going to be out of whack. You're going to be out of sync. A guy called Andy Stanley said this, what you were created for is connected to who you are created by. And we've got to get that the right way round. Is our passion for God in the top box of our life? She's saying yes to Jesus should be about entering into a life of passion. Now, I was brought up in a Christian home, and I'm grateful to God for that. And I had a great upbringing and a great upbringing in faith. But one of the dynamics of being brought up in the Christian environment I was brought up in, and I'm sure you will identify with this, is that we're often taught not to get too excited about things. Because if you get too excited about God, you're on a mountaintop. But how many of you know, after a mountaintop, there'll always come a valley. And then there'll be another mountaintop, and then there'll be a valley and there'll be up and. there. And I get that. And there's some truth in that. But when I read Mike Iacanali's book years and years ago, he talked about following Jesus about much more like being in a roller coaster. Now, I hate roller coasters. I don't do heights. But I've been in some, okay? And I I get what happens. You get strapped into the seat. So when you become a Christian and you say yes to Jesus, it's like you're getting strapped into the seat of the car. And it's easy. And as you pull away from the thing, this, this is easy, isn't it? Like following Jesus is easy. It's like the start of a roller coaster ride. And you even begin to climb up. This is going great. I'm loving this and I'm getting a great view. But how many of you know that when you're at the top of that thing, what happens next? Yeah? Whoosh! And all of a sudden you think, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to die. Everything inside of you is literally coming out. And you think, I'm going to die. And you're holding on for bare life. And then it comes out again. You think... I survived, I can do this, I can do this. And then it gets faster and faster and you're coming towards the end and you think, whoa, I'm going off the end. And you're looking straight across and there's a sharp left, you know that bit, or a sharp right. And your eyes and your mouth and your lunch is going that way and you're going that way. And at the end of it all, you come back into where the you started and you, you say, what a ride. And what he says is that is what it should be like following Jesus. Not a series of ups and downs, but like that. Twists and turns and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's difficult, but at least you feel alive. That's what it should be following Jesus. And when you put God in your top box, passion changes everything. I love these verses from Romans chapter 8 from the message, which is a new kind of paraphrase of the Bible. He says this, when God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With His Spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. goes on to say, This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God every day with a childlike, What's next, Papa? I love that. That sense of excitement, that sense of relationship. Passion for the presence of God. And when you look at David's life, that passion for the presence of God enabled him to do extraordinary things. So as a teenager, he appears um, uh, on the scene in in 1 Samuel 17 and he rocks up at the battle and his brothers are in the army at the battle and and he rocks up with some sandwiches for them, okay, some packed lunch and he's a teenager and he hears this giant ridiculing God and ridiculing the people of God and because he has a passion for the presence of God as a teenager, he says, who is this giant that he would defy God? And he takes on the giant and he takes his head off. And then later on in the story, because passion for God will do that, it will cause you to fight giants in your life. Because any giant in your life is a threat to God in your life. And to the name of God and the reputation of God. And that's the passion. If we're passionate about God more than anything else, then we'll fight the giant of addiction. And we'll fight the giant of fear. And we'll fight the giant of sin. Because we know that that is a threat to the name and the reputation of God. And because we're so passionate about the presence of God, any giant that comes will take it on because that's a threat to the name and the reputation of God. And then later on in the story, um, he he then enters into this whole big uh, running away thing from the king Saul who got it in for him and did some terrible things to him, hurt him badly. And David's in a cave one day and Saul comes into the cave. The Bible says, I love the Bible, it's so real, to relieve himself. I think we know what that means. He's coming to the cave to relieve himself. And, And the Bible says that David looks and his men say to him, you could kill him. He's the guy who's done you so bad, you could kill him and nobody will know. And he says this, because of my passion for God, why would I touch the Lord's anointed? Because of my passion for God, I will forgive even the people who've hurt me the most. When God is in your top box, it enables you, that passion enables you to forgive people who've hurt you the most. And when God is in your top box, it also enables you to forget sometimes etiquette and just to be passionate about God. One of the the stories we're going to look at this morning is is a story way later than these stories. When David has become king, Saul has long gone and buried. And David has become king. And he brings back into Jerusalem the lost ark of Israel, the ark of the covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll know something about that from Hollywood anyway. But it was a very famous and important story. Thing in Israel's history and it was symbolic of the very presence of God and so in other words when the ark was there it was like God was there and he was so passionate for the presence of God that this was the greatest day in his life and when he finally brought the ark of the covenant back into Israel he was so excited that he kind of lost sense of etiquette and this is what happened in 2 Samuel 6 as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David my daughter of Saul who was David's wife? Watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And he didn't just leap and dance. He took off all of his, his clothes and he literally just had his underwear on. The Bible says a linen ephod. Okay, now we're not going to recreate this today. Can I just say that? Okay. And this isn't like a license just to do whatever you want to do and all of that. This is just one instance of, of where his passion for God and the presence of God is so overwhelming that he forgets etiquette. And he just, just celebrates and, and, and explodes in, in this kind of worship and adoration towards God. Goes on to say, when David returned home to bless his house, Michael, daughter Saul, Saul, came out to meet him, and she said, Now you may notice some sarcasm. Here. If you're married, you'll recognize this. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. You getting it? Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. And notice that, the sarcasm and the cutting. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Darling, he's my top box, not you. I love you, but he's, he, you are not my top box. He is. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from your, his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. Do you know what? I'll become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. And my cow daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. Just a little comment here. She is in a window looking down at him and how he's worshiping God. She, who is a princess of the kingdom, all right, and should have been worshiping God as well, because this is the greatest moment in their history. All she's got in her heart is coldness, hardness, criticism, bitterness, cynicism. Can I say, if you ever get in that situation, you run the risk of remaining like she did, barren. Not physically, maybe, but spiritually barren. And he says, listen, darling, it says, I love you, but I love God more than anything else. He is in my top box and passion changes everything. Now, that's great. But here's where we come in. We can lose our passion, can't we? Even as followers of God, we can lose that passion. Somehow that passion for God in the top box gets replaced by other things. And before we know where we are, we've pushed God aside, even though we're followers of Jesus. And I want to look briefly at this story, because we looked at the end of the story. But we've got to go back to the beginning of the story to see where David lost his passion. And so in verse 9, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of, and this is my favorite name in the whole Bible, Obededon the Gittite. Don't you just love that? You know some Gittites, don't you? You work with them, don't you? You know, I'm not saying that. Obededon the Gittite, it's just a great name. And basically this says that something happened on this day that caused fear... To say to David, I ain't going to do this anymore. And he literally pushed the presence of God aside for three months. He lost his passion for the presence of God. He kept God at arm's length for three months. For three months, he lost it. For three months, God dropped out of his top box because of fear. How did that happen? Well, what happened was that, that, that David got the ark back from the Philistine camp and, and, and under the law it said that, they, that the ark should be carried on, on the shoulders of the priests. but he wanted to do it quicker. Got, got the right heart, right motive, just wrong method. He wanted to do it quicker, so they put it on a, on a cart and as it went through, it stumbled and one of the guys reached his hand out and because it was an irreverent and holy thing, then this guy lost his life and I'm not going to go into all of the ethics of that and the understanding of that for another day. But basically what happened was that David was hurt. David was hurt and he was disappointed and he was fearful. There they were with this ark, the lost ark. And they were bringing it through the streets and everyone was watching them. This was paraders of the lost ark. Do you like what I did there? And, uh, and this was, um, it took me ages to think about that that one. Uh, and as they were parading this lost ark through, this terrible thing happened. And it caused David to push God aside for three months. He lost his passion. Fear is often what keeps us away from God, even as Christians. We've had bad experiences, but we're not quite sure what God will do. And so we push God aside. This week, I was, um, I was watching the news this week, and um, uh, I can't remember what, one of the mornings, and, and, and this, this lady came on who was, who was talking about the fact that she's got cancer. She's got terminal cancer. She's got a five-year-old daughter, and she's just written this book called The Cancer Whisperer. And I was so engaged by what she said. She was a very bright a uh, lady and just the way she was handling it and the way that she was encouraging her child who's five to talk to her about her illness and not to, not to deny it or ignore it, but to engage it, I thought it was so helpful. And one of the things she said this, she says, if you don't get a hold of your fear, your fear will get a hold of you. That's so true. And it's not that dying of cancer isn't something to be fearful of, because of course it is. It's a massive thing. And the cancer can get you, but the fear can get you as well. And what she was saying is, I don't know about the cancer, but I do know I can take a hold of the fear. And so in your life, there will be things that that are coming to your door and things that are keeping you away maybe and wanting to push God away and maybe fear of what might happen will keep you to push God away. Listen, I don't know whether that thing will come to your door or not, but don't let fear do its work for for it. Don't let fear do the damage that that could do, because fear is something you can get a hold of. And because of fear, David pushes God at arm's length. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've not said yes to God. Maybe you've not put God in your top box of your life. Maybe you're keeping God at arm's length because of fear as well. Maybe fear of what will happen or fear of what might not happen or fear of how you might want to change or need to change. Maybe you're doing that. I want to encourage you. Maybe get a hold of that fear before it gets a hold of you. And there are three perspectives here which I think we all go through, that David went through. Three things that, if you like, can cause us to lose our passion. Firstly, the, the perspective of the past, of what had happened in the past. He tried this, and it didn't work, and he was hurt. It was defeat that cost it. It was defeat that caused him to lose his passion. It was also disillusionment. It's like, God, I was doing this for you. Many of us have set out to do things for God, and so many times, and I felt like it as well. And here I am, God doing all this, and this is what's happening. We get disillusioned. It causes us to push God aside and to lose that passion. And then but then there's the present. David says, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? It's like he's feeling worthless, he's feeling like he's not worthy, he's feeling sorry for himself. Anyone ever felt sorry for themselves? Or again, is that only me? <laughs> Maybe he's drained. You know, I read this recently or actually it was a long time ago about a guy who was preaching all around the world. OK, so telling everybody else about the about passion for God. And he said this toward the end of the itinerary, I was so tired that when I arrived back in New Zealand, I was giving a public meeting. I had to stop and sit down without finishing. If I'd have said another word, I'd have found myself in tears. The nervous batteries had completely run down. And When you get so run down... That you've almost could cry, that's when you can often sometimes lose your passion because you're so drained. The other thing, you can then get dried out because you know, that spiritual tank isn't being filled up. Again, another old preacher guy, W.E. that said, I'm a minister of God and yet my private life is a failure in these ways. And can I say, this is some of the most honest stuff I've read, and this was years ago. He says, I'm irritable and easily put out, tick. I'm impatient with my wife and children. I am deceitful in that I often express private annoyance when a caller is announced and simulate pleasure when I actually greet them. Ouch. That is so honest, isn't it? And if we live like that too long, we lose our passion. We push the presence of God to one side because we're drained or because we're dried out. And then I think there's a future dynamic. Because David says he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him. An accumulation of defeat and disillusionment, being dried out, being being drained, means he's disheartened. And he thinks, I just can't do this. I just can't do this. Listen listen to what these people say. These aren't famous people. These are ordinary people, anonymous. I don't even know who wrote these. But this is what real people have said about their Christian experience. And see whether any of you resonate with this. I'm not anywhere. And I haven't been anywhere for a long time. When it comes to my Christian life, I'm just going through the motions. Someone else said this. There was a time in my younger life when it all seemed to grab my imagination. Christ and faith, I mean. I really wanted to make my Christian commitment the absolute center of everything, but I've lost it. So now I perform more out of habit than out of anything else. You can lose your passion. But you know what? You can get your passion back. Amen? You can get your passion back. And when you do, passion changes everything. It's been so good these last couple of weeks to gather together with the 20 or 30 of us that are looking at going out to Hagley and start our church in Hagley. It's been so good hearing some of them share about their hopes and their expectations for this new adventure and project that we're heading out on as a church. And to listen to some people say, I've been a Christian a long time and I've been sitting and I've got a bit complacent. And I've lost a little bit of that passion. And it's about time I did something. And it's about time I did something with what God has given me. And and just to hear the passion in that has been so inspiring. You can get your passion back. How do we get it back? Very briefly, what did David do? Firstly, he recognized where he was at. Three months, he pushed God on one side. One day he woke up and said, I'm out of it. I've pushed God aside. And he said, this is where I am. You know when you go to a a theme park and and you want to get to the roller coaster, yeah? And you don't know where it is. You look at one of the big maps. What do you look at when you look at the map? You don't look at the roller coaster. You look at that little sign that says, you are here. Because if you don't know where you are, you've got no chance of going, going where you're going. And so the first thing is to recognize where you are. I am here. You want to get to that roller coaster of passion, you've got to know where you are. So you've got to recognize it. Secondly, you've got to return. You've got to think, where did I lose it? And he said, like, oh yeah, I lost it. And I pushed it aside. And then he went back. And then and you've got to take a risk because he knocked on the door to receive it back. And he's like, he was knocking on the door of Obedee and the Gittite saying, hey mate, I pushed it aside and you looked after it for three months and you've been blessed and your family's been blessed. And I am not going to live a day longer without your presence. I'm not going to live a day longer. Without the passion that I once had, I want it back. And so I want to invite the band to come back. And I want to suggest that one of the ways that we can respond this morning is by firstly looking at that map, not looking at the roller coaster of passion, not looking at all that, but looking at those three words, you are here. And let's recognize where we are. And then let's ask ourselves a question, have I really put God in my top box? If I haven't, I am never going to experience the passion, passionate life that changes everything. And you know, you know, when you come to regaining your passion, you know, we need to turn the tables a bit on it because we, we regain our passion not by trying harder to be passionate, but by looking at the passion of Jesus. You know, when I was looking at the dictionary for how the dictionary defines passion, number one is it's that barely uncontrollable emotion. Number two, passion is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, it is. That's why that film's the Passion of Christ. The actual definition of passion is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to regain passion, if you want passion for God, that only comes when you recognize and receive and respond to His passion for you. Again, another old school preacher. E. Stanley Jones said this, I looked into his face and was forever spoiled for anything unlike him. (laughs) Old language, I looked into his face and was forever spoiled for anything unlike him. If you want passion, if you want that passionate life, it doesn't come outside of recognizing again his passion for you. And then give yourself a chance. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who said, I don't feel passionate for God anymore. And I don't feel like my Christian life is this. and I don't feel my Christian life is that. And I say, what are you doing about it? Nothing. I'm not saying work harder, but at least give yourself a chance. Like a ship that puts its sails up and waits for the wind to catch it. Are you doing that? Like worship, listen to podcasts, get around some good people, make commitment to Be at life group, to be at church, to to connect, to get yourself in some spaces. Do something with your faith. Give yourself a chance to catch the wind of the Spirit. And then you've got to take a risk. Then you've got to take a risk. Like Obedien did, he went back and knocked on the door. And he said, I'm not going to last another day without the presence of God. And I want to invite you this morning to say, God, it's been too long. I've pushed you aside. Maybe because of fear. Maybe because of that bad experience. Maybe because I got dried out or drained or disillusioned or whatever. And I put you aside and I'm not going to live a day longer anymore without you. And I'm going to put you in the top box of my life. Let's pray. Why don't we stand together, guys? Let's stand. You know, if there's one person here today and... And you wanna say, that's me, that's me. And I'm not living a day more without you in the top box of my life. God, would you restore? You know, David said in the Psalm, David lost his passion at lots of times in his life. There was another time when he lost his passion after he'd sinned very badly, taken another man's wife, murdered the other man, horrendous. And when he came to realize what he'd done, he, he, he wrote this incredible psalm and he said, Restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation, not mine, of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of what you have done for me. Restore again the passion that you have for me. So listen, there's one person here today and you recognise you are here. And you will go back and you'll knock on that door and you'll say, God, I'm not moving until you give me back that passion, the joy of your salvation. God, if there's just one of you here, then this is really worth it. I don't want you to live a day longer without the passion that God has for you. Restore to me. I don't want to go this meaningless, passionless life. And I want to put you in the top box of my life. So before we sing this final song, which encourages us to very simply just, it says to God, set a fire in my heart, Lord, just burn again with passion for you. While we've got our eyes closed, maybe there's someone here. Maybe you've never fully given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never said, God, would you be in the top box of my life? Or maybe you have done that, but you know you've pushed him aside. You've replaced that top box with something or someone else. You've pushed the presence of God aside. Yes, you're a Christian. You believe in God. But you've got something else or someone else in the top box of your life. And you're saying right now, that's not how I want to live any longer. But I want God to be the number one passion in my life. If that's you, I want you to put your hand up really tall. And I want to pray for you today. Is there anyone here? You you say, I've lost my passion. Thank you. And I want that to be restored. You want to put God in the top box of your life. Do you want to declare that together? Is there anybody else? In the back here, thank you. God, we're reaching out our hand to you because we say we want you to be number one. We want you to be number one. And God, we're recognising that we've pushed you aside. And we've let other things become more important. And we're more passionate about those than we are about you. And Lord, we say sorry. And we come back and we say, God, set a fire in our heart. Set a fire in our heart. Because passion changes everything.